You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. And so tonight we're going to continue our series called Minding Your Marriage. And next week, our counselor, JC, will be back with us. We look forward to hearing from him again. And then Pastor and Mrs. Brunson will share the following week right before Valentine's Day. So that'll be a lot of fun. You'll want to be here for that. Well, it was love at first sight. On New Year's Eve, 1944, Honka and Sigmund spotted each other and fell in love. Now, the location of their meeting spot was not what you might expect. It was in a Nazi slave labor camp in Poland. It was New Year's Eve, and the camp commanders normally kept male and female separate, but that particular night, they let the men come be around the ladies, and they were singing and having fun together, and Sigmund was just looking through the crowd, and he spotted a beautiful pair of dark brown eyes. And he said when he saw her eyes, he heard bells ringing. And he went over to her and was very gentle and talked with her. And before he left, he kissed her on the cheek and then he walked away. Now for the next 17 days, they would only spend no more than two hours together. And during those 17 days, he went to to doing his job. And his job was to make ammunition for the Germans. And so he uh, purposely made the ammunition smaller than it was supposed to be. And the Germans, they figured out what he was doing. And so they came looking for him. Well, he hid in a hole in the ground. And, um, and the only person who knew where he was at was Hanka, because she's the only person he trusted. Isn't that amazing? He just met her. But this is what he said when he met her. He said, I lost my mind. When I saw her, The whole world was turning around me. I saw a pair of beautiful eyes, and I heard bells ringing. So now he's in a hole in the ground, and Hanka risked her life to bring him food. She brought him her food rations and risked her life, brought him a blanket because it was freezing cold out there. The next time that she saw him, he saw her walking to her, and she had her arms open like this, and she said, they're gone. We're We're free. And so the camp had been liberated. The very next day, they got married. They knew each other 18 days, spent around two hours together, and they married. And you might wonder, there's no way that they made it. Well, they had two daughters after World War II. They moved to Australia. And years later, they celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. 70 years. They went on to be married more than that. But at age 93 and age 91, this is what Sigmund said. He thought back to when he met his wife, Honka, and he just said, I I just knew right then that she was the one. I still get the same feeling when I look at her now. Always she is beautiful. Isn't that amazing? Decades together, and he can still think back and say, I feel the same way about her now as I did then. What does it take to stay in love? Anybody can fall in love, but what does it take to stay in love? That's what we want to talk about tonight. And I want to talk talk to you about an enemy to avoid and a friend to embrace. An enemy to avoid and a friend to embrace. I want to look at two different passages of Scripture. The first is in the book of James. So go ahead and turn to the book of James. It's in chapter 4. And then eventually we'll get to Philippians chapter 2. 
James is a book of action. If you were to, to, to go all the way through the book of James, there's 108 verses in James, and there's 54 commands. So it's really a, every, for every two verses, there's a command. That's how it averages out. Now, James didn't write to one particular city like, like Paul did for a number of his letters, but yeah, he did write to uh, Jewish Christians who had been scattered or dispersed from their homelands, and they were living out amongst the Gentiles and so James wrote them and to encourage them to grow in their faith. If you read in verse 4, he said, let, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he wanted them to grow and become more like Christ. And so you read through his letter and you see all these action, all these commands, just telling them, hey, here's how you grow. Here's how you become more like Christ. So you, know, you, you keep reading in chapter 1 and he says, man, you got to be quick to listen to the word of God. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer of the word of God. Then you get to chapter two and he says, hey, you can't show, you can't have prejudice. You can't show preference to people. And then you get to, to uh, then he's also in chapter two, he says, you know, you need to have deeds to go along with your faith. They, the two should be married together. Chapter three, he said, you should honor God in your speech. And then our study is going to be just in the first few verses of chapter four, but it's part of a larger context of chapter 3. Now, toward the end of chapter 3, James introduces us to godly wisdom. He said, you know, there's godly wisdom that's, that's pure and peaceable and gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy, good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. But there's also a worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom, if you look in, in verse um, 16, that's where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. So you've got worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, and he's comparing the two. And then you, you come to, ver, to, to chapter 4, and it, it begins abruptly. Uh, the end of chapter 3 ends so nicely, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Then all of a sudden, he switches back again, and he goes, this is what happens when there's worldly wisdom. So he's going to talk about these quarrels and fighting now, I realize this is not talking particularly about marriage, but he's, he's addressing believers, and surely some of them were married. And he's talking about their interpersonal relationships. And their relationships were characterized, at least partially, by worldly wisdom. And so he's going to say, here's how you deal with worldly wisdom. And oftentimes, that happens in our marriages as well. And when there's conflict, we're arguing just like people in the world do. And so James is going to talk, talk to us about the source of those conflicts. And so um, he, he uses this war language, this, this military war language, and that's on purpose. It's to show the deadly consequences of conflict in a worldly way. That's, who, that's what he wants to tell us. He wants to say, if you fight according to the way the world fights, that's motivated, motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, you will cause harm to yourself. And so James begins with the word where. It's, it's what in the translation I'm reading, but the word really there is where. He's looking for the source of our quarrels and fights. So look there in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, notice he says, among you, among you believers in Jesus Christ, we still have a sin nature. We still struggle with, with, with our sinful desires. And so there's conflict going on in, among these believers. 
The term for quarrels can be translated as military conflict. In Hebrews 11:34, it's translated as war. Here it refers to a large state of hostility, antagonism, strife, conflict. Quarrels, it refers to conflict that exists between a large group of people. Now, this is interesting. The second term, fights, refers to a, a series of battles fought within a war. So he's addressing the quarrels as the, 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 the campaign, and then the, the conflict, or the fights, are all the fights that make up that campaign. So uh, the second term, fights, talks about battles without actual weapons. These are verbal disputes, uh, probably the kind of conversation you hear down the street. Those, there's no weapons involved, but it's, it's verbal. It's, it's attacking. It's, it's criticizing. It's, it's fussing. That's, that's the kind of verbal dispute. A.T. Robertson said, the first term refers to a military campaign. The second refers to all the separate conflicts or battles. And so uh, James wants his readers to know here, hey, when you deal with worldly wisdom, you are in the midst of a battle and you are causing damage to each other, to your relationship, to your children, to those possibly your neighbors. This is what you're dealing with when you start fighting according to the, the rules of the world. So James was asking, what is the source of the quarrels among you? What is the source of this war between you, Christian? Where do fights come from? And so we, we just like them and just like we do too, we often think, oh, it's an external source. It's, it's my circumstances. If, if I just had, you know, a higher paying job, if I just had, you know, in-laws that were more understanding, if I just had this situation, if I just had kids that didn't fuss all the time, if I just had all of these different things, a different financial situation, then, man, everything would be great. See, you know, as long as we think that way, the, the problem is out there. If my circumstances change, James is telling the Christians, this, the problem is with you. And the problem is with me. The problem is not from without, it's from within. It's not external, it's internal. The real problem is with the passions that are at war within us. Look, look at this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Passions refers to self-centered desires. The Greek word is hedonin. We get the word hedonism from it. It refers to sensual pleasures, lusts. This pursuit of lust, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a negative sense. So he says, you have these lust, these passions inside of you, and they cause a, an all-out war inside of you. Now, this term is used in Luke eight fourteen. Remember where Jesus is talking about a group of people who hear God's word, but their love for God was choked out by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. That's this word, pleasures just distracted by all this pursuit of pleasure. And so it says these, are, these lusts inside of us, they are at war. And it's that, that term is used in 2 Timothy 2.4, referring to serving in the army. So it's talking about engaging in a conflict and a battle. Now, if you read Galatians 5, verse 17, it talks about this ongoing war inside of us, the spirit is opposed to the flesh, and the flesh is opposed to the spirit. So there's this ongoing war inside of Christians. And thankfully, we're more than conquerors through Christ, but we still have a sin nature, and we still have a sinful flesh that has lust, 
that wants its own way, that wants to be right, that wants to be uh, seen, that wants attention, that, uh, all of these things. And so there is this battle going on inside of us. And so James, now he's going to say, here's what's going to happen. Here's the consequences if you give in to these passions. You desire, verse 2, and do not have. You, you, you desire and do not have. Now, desire is not a negative word because Jesus used it in Luke twenty two fifteen 15, when he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. Talking about the Last Supper. So that, in, in general, that word is not negative. But here, it's referring back to uh, James chapter 3 and verse 16, where it's talking about jealousy and selfish ambition. So he's talking about worldly wisdom. So again, these believers are fighting and existing according to worldly wisdom. So you desire, that is, you have this selfish ambition in your heart, you have jealousy in your heart, and you desire, and you can't get what you desire. You desire it, but you can't have it. And when that happens, there is this rage. There is, we are furious when those kind of things happen. In the Old Testament, David's son Solomon desired to rule Israel so bad, he was willing to kill his dad in order to achieve his goal. It's, it's scary what we will do to get our way when we're driven by worldly wisdom. In his book entitled The Marriage, Marriage Builder, Dr. Larry Crabb talks about goals and desires. He says that in personal relationships, we can have goals and we can impose those goals onto our spouse. They really become expectations. And sometimes we don't communicate those expectations. And when those expectations aren't met, and it's, we get angry. And he says the, the, the whole reason you get angry is because it's a blocked goal. Like, let me give you an example. If I like to go to bed early. So if, if it's 9.30, I'm winding down for the night, and I'm thinking, hey, 10 o'clock's coming. I'm going to bed. And all of a sudden, Courtney comes in at 9.45. She's like, I'd really love to tell you about my day. Now, I love my wife. I'd love to listen to her. And, and now I've learned to do that. But early in my marriage, I, we, we would, I would get frustrated because it's a blocked goal. Because my goal is to be in bed, baby, by 10 o'clock. And now it's, that's a blocked goal. And so you can, we can have these expectations and impose those on our spouse and sometimes not even communicate them. And we get, we get frustrated. So James continues, he says, uh, not only are you having quarrels and fights, you're having these desires, you can't, you, you can't have it, so you murder. So you, you don't get what you want, so you just take the person out. Then he says, you, you covet. You covet and you cannot obtain. Covet means to be filled with jealousy, to be filled with envy. We get the word zealot or zealous from this term. It, it, it's a strong word that talks about this gripping desire. Man, I've just, I've just, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got to have it. Whatever it is, we covet. You think, man, if I could just have that, oh, I'd be so fulfilled. And, and, and we can't have it. He says, you covet and you can't obtain. So what do you do? You fight and quarrel. Fight refers to gauging in heated disputes without use of weapons, to verbal, you're attacking each other. Quarrel means to be hostile, to be in opposition to each other. It refers to the attitudes that some Judeans had toward Christians. And Paul used the term in Galatians 1.13 when he said he persecuted the church and he tried to destroy it. That word for destroy is, 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 is the word here for, for fight. So, man, there's, there's this, in, or for quarrel, there's these intense 
battle going on when we don't get our way. And, and the reason they didn't get their way, the reason we don't get our way sometimes is you don't have because you're, you don't ask. You, you're not asking God. You're desiring, you're coveting, but you're not praying. Instead of, instead of coveting and fighting and quarreling, you should be praying. You should be pouring out your heart to God because uh, only in the presence of Jesus is there true satisfaction. Psalm 16 says it's in his presence there's fullness of joy. That's that's where the the satisfaction is, not in getting our way. It's in the presence of Jesus. And, and, you know, Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so he says, but, hey, when you do pray, you you, you ask wrongly. That is, you you ask wickedly. You ask in a bad moral sense. You got the wrong motives. You know, I hear you praying sometimes, but you're not praying with the right motives because you want to take what God gives you and you want to squander it. That's what spin means. It means to squander it. Luke, Luke uses it when Jesus told the, the, the uh, prodigal son story. And remember he said the, the youngest son, he got his father's inheritance. And one translation said he spending a loose living, loose living, just frivolous, just spending money, just wasting it. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the picture here. We ask, and whatever we get, we just, it's just frivolous. It's just spent on our own selfish desires. Winchester, Virginia is a really interesting city. It was settled in 1732 by the Pennsylvania Quakers. George Washington lived there sometime as a teenager and as a young man. Uh, during the Civil War, uh, Stonewall Jackson lived there for a short time. It was a very prized city. The Confederates wanted it because they could, they could prevent the Union Army from getting up to Richmond. The Union Army wanted it because they could prevent the Confederates from, from uh, going further north. They could, they could harm Lee's army with it. So it, it just went back and forth, back and forth. In fact, there were six battles there in the Civil War. And so the city of Winchester was no stranger to, to uh, fighting. And, and, and one, one day, the city changed hands 13 times. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and General Sheridan, the Union General, and General Stonewall Jackson actually for a period of time located their headquarters one block apart. And can you imagine the tension that would have existed in that city? All the different flags that were just going up and down depending on where the Union there is, the Confederates there. And it just went on and on. That city changed hands at least 72 times over the Civil War. That's how much fighting was going on in Winchester. And I wonder how many of our homes tonight are just like Winchester, Virginia. Just constant tension. Just fussing, fighting, just back and forth and back and forth. And you don't get my way? Well, I'm just going to cut you off emotionally. I'm not talking to you. Well, you're going to do this? Well, I'm, you're not going to spend any money. And it's just back and forth and fighting and fighting and fussing and just filled with conflict. There's a ministry, and um, I think it's here too. It's it's, uh, I don't know the, the effect of it here, but it's called All Pro Dads. It was pretty big in Florida uh, because Tony Dungy's involved in it. And so they, they published an article a while back and uh, on the top 10 things that you and your spouse fight about. Now, do you know what number one is? You probably know what number one is. You could guess. Money. Money is number one. That is the number one thing, according to this article, that spouses argue about. Hey, the economy's doing great, right? Economy's doing great. So sounds like it's a spending problem, right? Economy's doing great for, for most people. They're blessed. Yet money is still the source 
of so much conflict. Number two, family communication. Couples don't feel like they're heard or understood, so it causes conflict. Number three, children. Not on the same page with discipline, not on the same page with what time you're putting the kids to bed, not on the same page with how you're going to educate the children, and it's just on and on and on. So those are the top three objects that people or things that people are fighting about. And so James is saying, hey, those things are important, but the source of your conflict is not those things. The source is your own selfish desire. The source is you're not getting your way and I'm not getting my way. And so I'm frustrated and I'm irritated and, and, and I'm angry because I want to spend money a certain way or I want to go on this trip and I can't do it, so I get angry. And, and, and he's saying the problem is not from without, the problem is from within. So here's our first uh, point tonight. In order for us to remain in love, we must avoid the enemy of selfishness. In order for us to remain in love, we must avoid the enemy of selfishness. Courtney's not the problem. I'm the problem. Until we become aware of our own selfishness and its destructive tendencies, it's always somebody else. It's always that thing. It's that child. It's that situation. It's, it's always somebody else's fault. I encourage you to think about the top issues that causes conflict between you and your spouse and just ask the question, why is it that we're fighting over this? Why is it that this is such a subject of contention? Why is it? If, if the issue is the children, then what, why is that? Is it because we're not doing what you want to do? What, 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 why, why are we fussing about this? Uh, our, the church I was previously at, our children's pastor, would say this. Parents would set up appointments to come talk with him about their children. They'd come in, oh, we're having this problem, and he said every single time, the longer they talked, they realized that it, the issue was really with the parents. It was, it was not a parenting issue. It was a marital issue every single time. Now, I'm sure there's some circumstances where, where that's probably not true. But oftentimes, things aren't right with mom and dad. They're not right, they're, they're not right in our parenting. So if, if communication is something that, that we're constantly fussing about or we feel like, well, I, he's just not hearing me and well, she's just not listening to me, then, then why is that? Is it because you're watching Netflix at night instead of talking? Is it because you're on the computer working and, and you're, you're on social media? You're, you're, you're not communicating. That's the problem. Uh, so there, there's got to be a reason. If, if money's continually a problem, then why is that a problem? Is it you're just overspending and you're not, or you just, you, you want it, and you're just going to go buy it and deal with the consequences of overspending? What, why, why is that the issue? So you say, okay, fine. Maybe, maybe I'm the problem. So what, what, what do I do? Well, James tells us, verse 7. In verses 7 through 10, James gives us 10 commands. I'm not going to go through all of them. I just want to give you a few, and then we'll go to Philippians. But he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James continued the military imagery here by using a military term. The term submit is a military term. It means to subject, to be subject, or to subject oneself to an ordered structure. It's an hierarchical term which stresses a relationship to superiors. So it's a term of order. Now, what's interesting is in the previous verse, James said, God opposes the proud. That word for opposes is anti-tasso. 
Anti obviously means against. Anti-tasso, God opposes, God anti-passos or tassos, the proud. God is opposed to the proud. But here believers are commanded to hupotasso. Don't be opposed to God, but submit to God. That means put yourself under God's authority. That's what it means to submit to God. Say, God, I, su- I submit to you. I'm putting myself under your authority willingly. So when you and I are operating in worldly wisdom, that is when we're driven by selfish ambition and jealousy, we are opposing God. We are opposing him. That means we're, we're in the wrong. So James is saying your worldly conflicts are symptomatic of the real problem. The real problem is you're opposing God and you need to submit to him. So the answer, if, if there's just, oh, if we're fighting and worldly wisdom and we realize that, the answer is to go to God and say, God, I submit to you. I, I, I'm out of sorts with you. I'm opposing you because I'm being proud. And so su- submission to God is the first step in solving the, the, the human conflict problem. And, and, and James, the, the, the force here is, hey, do it now. Don't, don't delay. Do, do it. So go ahead and submit to God. And so when I'm operating in marriage at, with, at, with worldly wisdom, then I, I'm out of source. Things are out of order. So I need, I need to submit to God and get things back in the right order. And then God will begin to, to change our heart. So once things are back in order, once we submit to God, then he says, resist the devil. That is, stand against him. Take your stand against him. And when we do so, it says, he will run away. He will flee from us. Then after that, it says, draw, draw near to God. Let's draw near to God. That, that's Jewish priesthood language. And, and it re- really means just to have intimate fellowship with, with God. So don't just submit to him and say, okay, I'm done, but submit to God and say, now, God, I want to be in your presence. I want to spend time with you. I want you to change my heart, change the way I think, change my, uh, change my heart, oh God. That's, that, that's what it means. So, uh, so far, the enemy to avoid is selfishness, but there's also a friend in marriage that we want to embrace. And so I want you to turn to Philippians for this one. And, um, uh, I'm going to teach you a little bit more than we're planning to have a panel uh, discussion, all-star panel, by the way, all-star panel up here. And uh, they're going to talk about things they've done to remain in love over the years. So I hope it'll be a blessing to all of us. But uh, look at Philippians 2, uh, particularly in verse 3. And um, Paul's writing this letter. He's concerned about an issue in the church. And there, verse 28 says there were opponents and uh, we think this is probably the Judaizers. If you look at chapter 3, it talks about that. And so uh, Judaizers were people who believed that Christians needed to obey all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And so Paul's addressing them, and he says, I want you to have one mind. I want you to, this is in really in verse 27. He says, uh, so whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I want you to have unity in the church there in Philippi. And so uh, I realize, again, he's not talking about marriage specifically, but the principles apply to marriage. And so in verse 3 of chapter 2, um, or actually in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it's just one long sentence uh, in the Greek, and the main verb is in chapter 2. It's a command. It says, complete my joy. That's the main verb that carries all four of those verses there in English. And so, yeah, complete my joy. Well, how, how, how are they supposed to complete Paul's joy? Well, he goes on to tell them, he said, be, be of the same mind. You know, have, have unity. 
have the same love, uh, being, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he comes in chapter, or in verse three. Uh, there's not a verb in, in chapter three, in verse three. It, it connects back to complete my joy. So how are we to complete his joy? Well, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. The very first word in that, in that sentence is nothing. So if you're, if you're reading it in Greek, it was nothing. It just stands out. Uh, don't do anything. Don't entertain any thoughts of selfish ambition is what he's telling them. That, that, that's what got you into trouble. That's why there's division there. But don't, don't entertain any thoughts of selfish ambition. Uh, one source wrote this. Selfish ambition refers to those who are busy and active in their own interests, seeking their own gain or advantage. They cannot lift their gaze to higher things. Just like you're walking with blinders on, you just can't see anything else around you. There's a whole world going on over here, but because we're so self-centered, we can't, we can't see that. And uh, this term for, for selfish ambition, it it's also appears in Galatians 5.20 as a work of the flesh. Now, I thought this was so interesting. The term for selfish ambition comes from the verb that means to work as a day laborer. A day laborer, someone who just, they may work here for a day, they may work there for a day, and over the next day they're over here. They're just working for a day's wage. They're a daily hire. The word means the manner, attitude, or disposition of the day laborer. Now let me ask you a question. Do day laborers typically have the overall health of the organization in their, in their best interest? No, they, they, they probably don't. Maybe there's an exception, uh, some exceptions. Normally they don't. They're just like, hey, I'm working for a day, pay me, and I'm moving on to somebody else. So when you and I are operating in selfish ambition, we are treating our spouse like, hey, I'm just a day laborer. In other words, I don't care what happens to you. I don't care what happens a year from now. I'm in it for me, and I want it right now. I don't care about the health of the organization. I don't care about the health of the marriage. Now, we wouldn't say that, but that's how we're acting when we're acting with selfish ambition. We are acting at, I want mine and I want it now. And I don't care what happens tomorrow because it's all about me and I need to get paid right now. It's selfish ambition. And so he says, don't, don't, don't do anything. Don't, don't do, do nothing from selfish ambition. Uh, don't, don't act like a day laborer in your marriage. Don't act like a day laborer in your church. It, it, causes, it causes damage. Uh, uh, the, the term normally carries the idea of building oneself up at, uh, at someone else's expense. You know, I, I'm gaining because you're losing. And, I, I, you know, I'm benefiting because you're, you're being hurt. That's, what it, that's, that's this selfish ambition. Uh, selfish ambition leads to conceit. Um, I promise there's good news coming. You just got to hang with me, okay? Uh, do nothing. We got to be faithful to the text. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit comes from two words. Kinos, which means empty, and doxa, which means glory. Don't do anything from empty glory. Don't do anything from vain conceit. That is, empty, conceit refers to wanting personal glory or attention, and Paul is saying, when you get that at personal glory, when you get that attention, it's empty. It's empty glory. It will never satisfy you. It will never fulfill you. So he says, don't, don't operate just trying to get things for yourself because it's empty glory. It, it, it will not satisfy you. you. You think, if I win this argument, I'm going to feel so good. And it's empty glory. It hurts your marriage. 
It, you, you may win that battle, but you, you lose the overall war. You discourage your spouse or you hurt your children because they hear you fussing or whatever it is. So he said, don't, don't do anything from, I don't act like a day laborer. Don't try to get empty glory because it's an illusion. Don't, don't do that. But then he says, thankfully, there's, a, there's a, a conjunction right there in the middle of the sentence. But here's what you should do. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. See, humility here is considered a dative of motivating cause. So humility should motivate us to count our spouse. Uh, originally, he's talking about all other believers. I'm applying this to marriage. To count your spouse as more significant than yourself. It means to, to consider the other person more important. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. Uh, humility is the opposite of that. The term humility literally means lowliness of mind. The Greeks hated humility. They, they despised it. They wanted to elevate humanity to, to nobility, as one source said. So, so pride means to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and humility is the opposite of that. Uh, humility remembers that we have faults too. It, it, it means I, I'm going to think of someone else as more important than myself. Now, count, he says, count in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count means to consider and it means to engage in an intellectual process. It means to really give thought to something. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really think about this. That is, when you, when you, you come home, uh, husbands or wives, you, you just, you should, we should think for a minute, I wonder what it's been like. I wonder what it's like to be in their shoes for the day. I, I wonder what it's been like for her to listen and to be with, she's been with kids all day. I wonder what it's like that he's been in the classroom teaching all day. I wonder what it's like that, that he's got, he, he or she has these demands at the office. And I, 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 he's, he's just, they're just under the gun to get those, those to, to meet that deadline. And it means to put yourself in someone else's shoes. To, to count, count others is more important. And we begin to do that. We begin to think, man, I, I, bet, they, I bet they're worn out. I, 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 bet, I bet she would love to have adult conversation. She's been with kids all day. I, I, bet, I, bet, I bet he's... Um, Mentally, just he, he just needs a break. I, it means to, I, I'm going to put myself in my spouse's shoes and consider them more important. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to be demanding. I'm not going to say, no, no, I need you to listen to me because I'm thinking, well, maybe she doesn't want to listen. Maybe he doesn't want to listen. Maybe he's been communicating all day. Maybe he doesn't feel like communicating. And so I'm considering the other person more important. Now, the term for more significant than yourself, it means to have more value than. I'm going to consider you to have more value than me. And it's used in 1 Peter 2.13, talking about the governing authority that has position, has a controlling position, has authority, has power. It's used in Romans 13.1 as, as governing. And so he's saying, husbands, wives, treat the other person as if they have, they have more influence. They have more power. They have, they're in a higher position than you. That's how you treat them. That's how you, you honor them. Who, who wouldn't want to live with a spouse that does that? You think, I, I, it's not about me. I, I, you're more important than me. Let's go where you want to go to eat. Let's, you want to go see your family for the weekend? Man, let's go. Or, or you go. And I'll, I'll keep the kids. And uh, you, You're more important than me. You need a break? Yeah, I, why don't you go take a break? I, I got this. Uh, I, you've, been, you've been on your feet all day. Let, I got the dishes tonight. Who, who, man, I, how can you not remain in love doing those things? I know y'all think this is funny, but if you consider each other more important, we'll do those things. 
And so um, it means supporting your spouse's desire to, to go back to school regardless of the cost to you. It means helping your spouse advance in his or her career. It means keep, keeping the children so your spouse can have a break, even though it's not convenient for you. And, and you, 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 I know you, you hear that and you go, that's just impossible. How, how in the world do you do that? That's the point. Keep reading in, 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 in Philippians 2. How do we do that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You do it, we do it by looking to Christ. So I know you feel the weight of, man, I've got to do all these things. The point is not to try harder. The point is to look to Christ more. The point is to go, Jesus, you, help me. I can't do this. I can't consider. My natural inclination is to consider myself more important. And in, in, in order to be like Christ who emptied himself and, and, and took on the empty, as you know, the verse says, it took, uh, took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Christ is our example. So we look to him. It's, it's like, Jesus, just help me. I, I can't do this. So just fill me with your spirit, Father. Help me to be more like Jesus Christ. It's looking to him more. So the thrust of this message, please hear me, is not try harder. It's look to Jesus more. And he will help us do this. He is our example. He is the one who emptied himself. Our final point is this. In order for us to remain in love, the friend we must embrace is selflessness. Okay? We need to avoid selfishness. Let's embrace selflessness. If we operate in our marriages by constantly considering our spouse more important than ourselves, remaining in love will not be a problem. Remaining in love, is, 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 that will automatically happen. Now, imagine a marriage where you thought more of your, of your spouse than of yourself. Imagine it and then ask Jesus to help you experience it. Avoid selfishness, embrace selflessness. In the year 2000, the U.S. Armed Forces decided it needed to conduct a major war game in order to prepare for war in the Middle East that they thought might be coming. So it took about two years, $250 million, to prepare for this huge set of war games. And the, the, uh, they called it the Millennium Challenge 2002. The branches of the U.S. military said, okay, we're going to be called the blue team. And they had all of these weapons. They had aircraft carriers. They had uh, technology. They had, you name it, they had it. They had 13,500 troops involved in this. And um, meanwhile, there was a red team. So you had the blue team, which was the U.S. Joint Forces. Then you had the red team, which was supposed to represent a Middle Eastern army, most likely Iran at the time. So you have the blue team and the red team. Well, the red team needed a leader. And so they went out and got a guy, a 41-year military veteran um, named Lieutenant General uh, Paul Van Riper. Van Riper uh, was a three-star lieutenant general. He'd been retired five years. They coerced him out of retirement. And so now he's leading the red team, blue team versus red team. The... uh, the blue team had all the capabilities. They, they were even using technology that didn't even exist yet. They was not even going to exist until five years later. So blue team clearly had the advantage. Well, Von Riper has the red team, and uh, he had his own plan. And so he was given his capabilities. He was given all of his stuff. The first thing the blue, th- blue team did was they took out all of his, Von Riper's communication capabilities. They took out his fiber optics, 
He couldn't communicate. So they thought, okay, well, this guy is going to use cell phone. That's how he's going to communicate with people. So they're listening. They're waiting for him to communicate. They don't hear a thing. In fact, they issue an ultimatum to Von Riper, and they said, you need to surrender. Just go ahead and surrender. We've got you cornered. You've, you can't even communicate. And they didn't hear anything for two days. Nothing for two days. They thought, what in the world is this guy doing? Well, out of nowhere, Von Riper gives the command to launch cruise missiles against the blue team. And in less than 10 minutes, Von Riper sinks 19 U.S. ships and, and kills the equivalent of 20,000 U.S. soldiers in less than 10 minutes. It was over just like that. Von Riper won. Incredible. So they call this guy in and they said, how in the world did you do this? How did you, you must have cheated. He goes, I didn't, there's no cheating in war. There's winning in war. I, I didn't cheat. And they said, well, we didn't hear anything. We, how did you communicate with these people? Well, he had non-military ships that, you know, pleasure boats that were out there, and they would find where the blue team were. They would go back to land. Von Riper had, had, had um, coordinated these motorcycles, uh, couriers, to get the information and take it back to them. He was using on, on, an, on an airstrip, you know, the lights on an airstrip. They were blinking. They were sending signals to people. He had... Um, uh, the prayer tower at a Muslim mosque, the minaret. He had people up in there sending signals. They were using flashlights, all kind of stuff that they used in World War II. That's how he was communicating. And so he, he, when it came time to launch missiles, he's using all this, all this stuff they didn't even think about. And so he says, you see, your problem is that you rely too heavy, heavily on technology. You relied on technology. I'm relying on human intuition. And so he said, that, you know, that's, that, that's where you're wrong. That, that's the problem. So Von, Von Riper and the red team won because he thought and acted differently than the blue team. In Christian marriages, we must think differently than the rest of the world. We don't fight to get our way. We lay down our preferences because we consider our spouses more important than ourselves. And we do it because that's what Jesus did for us. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.